this is John Goldthorpe, your host for In Dialogue with Nature, our podcast of readings, conversations, and talks that deepen our understanding and experience of an ever-growing conscious, caring relationship with nature and one another. This is part two of our three-part series on Craig Holridge's essay, Where Does an Animal End? The American Bison. In part one of our series, Craig read and then we considered the life of the bison, the life of the herd, and the mutual dependency of bison and the prairie. But we've left a crucial creature out of this picture, the human being, specifically the members of the tribes of the Great Plains. In today's episode, we will address part two of Craig's essay that describes the cultural life, the spiritual life of the people of the Great Plains, and their relationship to the bison in various dimensions. Here is Craig Holridge reading from his essay. While the large numbers of roaming bison played a significant and essential role in maintaining and diversifying the prairie, they were not alone in doing this. One other major player was fire. As we know today, fires tend to kill shrubs and trees, while grasses are more resistant to fire since they have growing points beneath the surface of the soil and can re-sprout after a fire. Most of the above-ground parts of grass plants that die in the fire decompose during the following year. But a significant amount, perhaps 20%, remains if the grasses are not grazed or burned by fire. When undecomposed litter accumulates, the grasses become less productive. So both fire and grazing keep the prairie thriving. Fires arise from lightning and from human action. Today, ecologists set fires in prairie preserves, in some cases annually, in others in three to five year intervals. Historically, the tribes of the Great Plains regularly set fires in the grasslands. These human set fires have been far more important in creating and maintaining grasslands than lightning. One important effect of the fires that the Native Americans set in the fall was that the following spring, grass grew vibrantly in the burned areas and attracted bisons to these grazing lawns, as they have come to be known. Native tribes could expect to find bison herds in these areas, which often became their spring hunting grounds. The native tribes also used fire as an aid in hunting bison. The prairie was home of the bison, and the bison along with fire encouraged prairie growth. The main source of fire were the native people, who in turn lived from the bison, that lived from the prairie, that thrived due to the fires that the tribes set. A truly interwoven fabric of existence. The life of the different plains tribes revolved around the bison. Virtually every part of the bison carcass could be put to use for some purpose. Let me give just a few examples. The meat, internal organs, blood, and bone marrow were used for food. Whole hides, painstakingly dressed, provided robes and rugs and walls for sweat houses and teepees. 
Clothes, moccasins, hats, belts, and mittens were made from the skins. Rawhide, which consists of skins that have only had the flesh and hair removed, served as knife sheaves, cups, dippers, kettles, mortars, rattles, and much more. Horns were fashioned into spoons and ladles, and even into arrow points and drinking cups and powder flasks. Hooves along with the muzzle, eyes, penis, and other parts of the animal were boiled together to make glue. Bones became war clubs, pipes, knives, knife handles, arrowheads, and runners for small dog-drawn sleds. Teeth were mainly used for jewelry and ornaments. Strands could be stripped from the tendons to make durable threads, and when twisted together, such threads became ropes or bowstrings. Hair found use as the lining for moccasins or was made into dolls and balls for children. The rumen and the bladder, for example, could be used to hold water and food. Gallstones provided a yellow pigment for paint. And the dung, buffalo chips, when dried could be burned like peat. So we see how integral the bison, after its death, was to the life of the native people. The bison sustained them as food, and its recrafted manifold parts enveloped them and made their day-to-day life possible. The transformed bison was an active and essential component of the plains tribes. Clearly, in this sense, a bison does not end when it dies. Its life as an individual organism is gone, but through its body parts, the bison integrates itself into a whole new world, the life world of the native people. What I have ignored so far is the role bison played in what we would call today the spiritual life of the Plains tribes. To separate day-to-day life from the spiritual is something we do in modern Western cultures. This separation was not present in the life of the native tribes. A bison hunt, for example, was not just a matter of killing an animal for its useful products. It was an extension an expression of the Plains tribe's relation to bison as physical, spiritual beings. Most of us today who grow up in Western cultures and use an animal or plant for food or other needs do not feel a connection to some larger spirit nature of the animals or plants we consume. But this was very different for the native people, as the following story of the Blackfoot tribe reveals. Here's the story. Long ago, in the winter time, the buffalo suddenly disappeared. The snow was so deep that the people could not move in search of them. For in those days, they had no horses, so the hunters killed deer, elk, and other small game along the river bottoms, and when these were all killed off or driven away, the people began to starve. One day, a young married man killed a jackrabbit. He was so hungry that he ran home as fast as he could and told one of his wives to hurry and get some water to cook it. While the young woman was going along the path to the river, she heard a beautiful song. It sounded close by, but she looked all around and could see no one. 
The song seemed to come from a cottonwood tree near the path. Looking closely at this tree, she saw a queer rock jammed in a fork where the tree was split, and with it a few hairs from a buffalo, which had rubbed there. The woman was frightened and dared not pass the tree. Pretty soon, the singing stopped, and the iniskim, the buffalo rock, spoke to the woman and said, Take me to your lodge, and when it is dark, call in the people and teach them the song you have just heard. Pray, too, that you may not starve and that the buffalo may come back. Do this, and when the day comes, your hearts will be glad. The woman went on and got some water, and when she came back, took the rock and gave it to her husband, telling him about the song and what the rock had said. As soon as it was dark, the man called the chiefs and old men to his lodge, and his wife taught them this song. They prayed, too, as the rock had said should be done. Before long they heard a noise far off. It was the trample of a great herd of buffalo coming. Then they knew that the rock was very powerful, and ever since then the people have taken care of it and prayed to it. This story of the first Iniskim, or Buffalo Rock, has been passed down in variations until the present. The Iniskim became part of a sacred bundle that was important in ceremonies to call the bison. So we see here a powerful story culture in which an object has a latent force that can be freed when people give attention to it and use it in an appropriate way. There is, in this way of being in the world, no such thing as a merely inanimate object. The sacred pipe of the Lakota Sioux was brought to the tribe by the white buffalo cow woman, and she instructed them about its significance and its use. When she was leaving them, she turned first into a young red and brown buffalo calf, then into a white buffalo, and finally into a black buffalo. This buffalo walked farther away from the people, stopped, and after bowing to each of the four quarters of the universe, disappeared over the hill. The pipe itself was a kind of microcosm of the universe. White buffalo cow woman spoke the following words to the tribe. With this sacred pipe, you walk upon the earth. For the earth is your grandmother and mother, and she is sacred. Every step that is taken upon her should be as a prayer. The bowl of this pipe is of red stone. It is the earth. Carved in the stone and facing the center is the buffalo calf, who represents all the four-leggeds who live upon your mother. The stem of the pipe is of wood, and this represents all that grows upon the earth. And these twelve feathers, which hang here, where the stem fits into the bowl, are from Wanbi Galeshka, the spotted eagle. And they represent the eagle and all the wingeds of the air. All these people and all these things of the universe are joined to you who smoke the pipe. All send their voices to Wakantanka, the Great Spirit, 
When you pray with this pipe, you pray for and with everything. So the pipe is very wakan, meaning powerful, holy, sacred. It is not merely an outer symbol of the universe. It embodies the universe. It is a presence of the universe. When we hear, for example, that the buffalo calf carved in the pipe represents all four-leggeds, we might think of it as an illustration or design element. But for the Plains tribes, each feature was a re-presencing of a universal power. The pipe was used in at least seven different ceremonies. These ceremonies were human enactments, often involving purification, to create renewed relations in the tribe and in the rest of the universe to the power and sacredness of the world, to Wakan Tanka. In this sacred world, the bison and the human being are people. As part of the instructions for preparing the sun dance, the tribe is told, You should cut from rawhide the form of Tatanka, the buffalo, He represents the people and the universe and should always be treated with respect. For, was he not here before the two-legged peoples? Is he not generous in that he gives us our homes and our food? The buffalo is wise in many things, and thus we should learn from him and should always be as a relative to him. In the Blackfoot story of Scarface, the son asks, Which of all the animals is the most sacred, has the most sun power? The buffalo is. Of all animals, I like him best. He is for the people. He is your food and your shelter. And the bison could also be a teacher. The young Iowa boy, Lone Walker, followed his father and other men on a buffalo hunt and was weeping since he too wanted to hunt. Here is what is told of him. In the distance he saw them shoot a buffalo bull, a small one, and leave it lying there while they passed on. Just as he was passing the carcass, sobbing and crying, the bull spoke to him. Oh, so it's you, Lone Walker. I'm glad you came, for I've recovered, and I'm just about to get up again. Now I'm going to tell you what to do from this time on. You must skin me over the forehead, taking my horns and a strip of fur down over my backbone to my tail, and you must use me in doctoring. Also take a piece of flesh from my leg, dry it and pulverize it. Take some of my back fat to grease yourself and the wounds of your patients. Next, Remove my dew claws and make them into a rattle. You have been trying to dream something, so today I'll show you what we buffaloes will give you, and you may hereafter do to your own people as we do to ourselves. This doctoring will be called the Buffalo Ways. Then the buffalo taught him the roots and the herbs that they used to heal the sick. They were especially potent for broken bones and wounds. He showed the lad how to use splints in binding them up, and he taught him the potent buffalo songs and what preachments and prayers to make.
So we see how extending beyond its remarkable and crucial material service to the Plains tribes, the bison inhabited their souls and became part of their actions. The bison was a fellow spiritual person, a guide, and a teacher who taught from the inside out, and certainly materially from the outside in. The bison extended into the very core of a human culture. Or we could also say, a human culture stretched out into the many-layered being of the bison. The rich coexistence of plains tribes and bison was brought to an end during the course of the 19th century. The Plains tribes were being decimated by illnesses such as smallpox, carried by Euro-Americans, and by the military campaigns against them. Concurrently, the population of bison dropped from millions to a few hundred, or maybe a thousand, by the beginning of the 20th century. Drought, increased hunting by native tribes on horses, exotic diseases, and especially the market for bison fur were reducing bison numbers in the latter half of the 19th century. The wanton slaughter of bison by hunters and soldiers came in full force in the decades after the Civil War, when railroads extended into the Western Plains. The power of greed, the so-called market, and the desire to open up the continent for Euro-Americans by ridding it of Native Americans and their source of life, the prairie and the bison, drove the decimation. The Plains people foresaw in dreams and visions this tragic interweaving of their destiny with that of the bison. For example, Black Elk, the Sioux holy man, states... A long time ago, about 70 years ago, there was an Indian medicine man, Drinkswater, a Lakota, who foretold in a vision that the four-leggeds were going to go back into the earth. And he said that in the future, all over the universe, there shall be a spider's web woven all around the Sioux. And then, when it shall happen, you shall live in gray houses, meaning these dirt-roofed houses in which we are now living. But that will not be the way of your life and religion. And so when this happens, alongside of those gray houses, you shall starve to death. The deep connection to the bison came to vivid expression when Plentiku, a Crow tribal leader, said as an 80-year-old man in the late 1920s, When the buffalo went away, the hearts of my people fell to the ground, and they could not lift them up again. After this, nothing happened. After the near extermination of the bison by 1900, populations of the animals gradually grew again. Today, there are around 20,000 bison in 62 different conservation herds in North America and about 400,000 in herds raised for commercial use, meaning for their meat. Even the few free-roaming herds, such as the one in Yellowstone National Park, are not truly free to roam wherever they go, since outside the park boundaries, they can be hunted. 
A question weighs heavily on anyone who gains a sense of the full life of a bison. It's centered and its peripheral nature, as I have tried to portray it here. Can we human beings choose to speak for the bison as they have become part of us and provide conditions for them to expand again on earth into a larger world of relations? We cannot simply reverse the tragic contraction of the bison, but we can move forward to a human culture that once again acknowledges the value of these expansive creatures that these animals are. And we can work, despite all obstacles, to provide large areas where they can become agents in the revitalization of landscapes. A variety of initiatives in native tribes, NGOs, and government are working in this direction. One such initiative is that of the Intertribal Buffalo Council, which was founded, and now I quote, for the purpose of restoring buffalo to tribal lands to promote and rekindle the spiritual and cultural relationship between tribal people and buffalo, to promote ecological restoration, and to utilize buffalo for economic development, end quote. Fred Dupre, a founding member of the council, had a conversation with historian Dan Flores about the council's idea of bringing the buffalo back to the reservations. An elderly Lakota woman approached them and said, in effect, Best you ask the buffalo if they want to come back. So they performed a ceremony and asked the buffalo. They want to come back, the ceremony revealed, but they don't want to come back and be cows. They said, They want to be buffaloes. They want to be wild again. Hello, Craig. Welcome back. Thank you, John. Today is going to be part two. We're going to talk about the life of the native peoples of the Great Plains and their relationship to the bison. And to begin that conversation... There's something we left out last time that is integral to the way the Great Plains evolved and were maintained, and that's the deliberate use of fire by the folks who lived there. Can you tell me a little bit about that and why it's important? Yeah. One knows actually all over the world where there are grasslands and savanna-like ecosystems that fire plays a big role. And on the one hand, you can have fire through lightning, which is a reality that has nothing to do with direct human influence. And then you have indigenous people also around the world. And now we're talking about North America and we're talking about the Plains tribes who then actually consciously set fire to the prairie so that you had big areas that would burn And those were not controlled burns. They were controlled by the conditions of the weather at the moment, the overall climate, while the year was, how dry it was, etc. These fires could burn for days and weeks. And those fires, they have the ecological effect of burning a lot of the detritus, a lot of what the dead plant matter, also some animal matter, but mainly the plant matter. And 
that has two effects. It opens up the soil. It's not so matted and woven together. There's an aeration. There's a fertilization effect, nutrients going into the soil. And afterwards, the grasses, because you see these fires sweep through, the grasses are not killed. They're burnt down, but then they have the ability to grow back quickly and revitalize the prairie, you could say, in a relatively short period of time. And the burning also holds back the growth of the woody plants that would otherwise tend to come because the grazing animals will avoid the woody plants. So this element of the grazing and the fires help to create what we know as the prairie. It's so interesting because I'm aware that this happened, but it's hard to imagine even today having the facility to manage a fire with some confidence. And the fact that this has been going on for so long is quite something. Yeah. And I think the term managing there is probably not right, right? I mean, I think, right, these are not like one has today, the controlled burns that ecologists do. And very carefully, they say, this is the five acres we want to burn and no more. These fires burned probably sometimes more than the native people even were thinking of burning. And sometimes the fires might have just happened by chance, but they happened to be because they had had fires in a particular place. Maybe they weren't put out and a fire happens. But altogether, it worked, right? It worked. It is an amazing thing, but it, you can't imagine that they coordinated hundreds of people to get out there and say, okay, we only want it to burn to this boundary and then no more. It wasn't like that. They weren't thinking about it in the kind of the modern ecological terms that we do today. So it's interesting you said you can't think about it like that. But I have to confess, when I was picturing in my mind the burn, that's exactly what I was doing, is I was projecting onto the past the way we do it today. Yeah. And this is just a, oh, John, you have a ways to go. Well, I mean, it's natural for us to do that, and it's in a way hard not to do it. And the burns that, for example, the native people started out here in the east in the forests, because the burns were done quite often, they didn't spread that far. They weren't catastrophic in the way that the forest fires are today in the western part of our continent, because the burning was a regular part of you could say, the, the life of the ecosystem. And so it doesn't become catastrophic if it's going on regularly. So that's another aspect of it. So again, in our conversation, picture in my imagination gets adjusted because I live in Northern California and I can only think of catastrophic fires. Yeah, of course. I was just in Colorado and we saw the results of the fires in 2020 happened up in the Rocky Mountains. And it was absolutely devastating for me to look at, to think of such huge areas of forest that had burned. Had there been burning more regularly, it would never do that. You wouldn't have that. There were so many dead trees, and then you have the dying off of trees because of bark beetles, etc., that create conditions today that where you can see why people want to suppress fires. And of course, 
the huge populations of people that you don't want to have be killed by fires. That's completely clear. So we've got a wholly different situation. The population density of people in the 16, 17, even into the 1800s in the area of the prairies was minuscule. So the danger of fire killing a lot of people was hardly there. Okay, my picture's adjusted. Thank you. Then, Craig, there's another piece that's fascinating, too. So they used fire in terms of the grasslands and other growth, but there was a second deliberate use of fire, and that was in hunting. Yeah, that was used in various ways, and maybe it makes sense. I have a quotation here from a French Jesuit priest from the 1720s, so quite early, where he describes this process one way this might have looked. So I'll just read that. In the southern and western parts of New France, on both sides the Mississippi, the most famous hunt is that of the buffalo, which is performed in this manner. The hunters range themselves on four lines, which form a great square, and begin by setting fire to the grass and herbs, which are dry and very high. Then, as the fire gets forward, they advance, closing their lines. The buffaloes, which are extremely afraid of fire, keep flying from it, and at last they find themselves so crowded together that they are generally every one killed. Mm-hmm. So you encircle, this is one way of encircling with fire around a herd or a partial herd, a group of bison, and that allows a much easier killing than racing after them on horses or on foot before horses were there to kill the bison. So now we see the relationship in a very basic way in terms of how the bison were killed. But then there's this whole section you have about all the ways in which the Plains tribes used the bison, served their life. And I think it would be good just to refresh to name a few of these ways. And our listeners have already heard your longer list, but just to get in our mind's eye right now, some of the ways in which the bison was utilized in their day-to-day existence. Just imagine eating many different parts of the bison. So food, clothed in bison skin, implements made of bison horns and bison bones, living in structures, teepees, other kinds of tents and closures, which were sewed together bison hides, inside sleeping on bison hides, skins, having bison as robes and as blankets, bison as part of their ceremonies, a skull in front of the structure that was for a sweat lodge. So on and on, I'll just add what we would call jewelry. It's hard to imagine a part of the bison that wasn't integral to their lives and where they were feeding on this and surrounded at the same time feeding on the animal and surrounded by it, by its remnants, by the bison remnants, surrounded in their own physical being. I mean, it's quite 
an amazing thing. And I think the picture you give, and I thought about this in terms of my own life, is there any creature or any one thing that plays such a all-encompassing role in my life? Because as you said, the daily needs, every part used, and so I'm encountering parts of a buffalo multiple times every day in my life. And I can't think of anything similar in my life. And what is, I think, also hard for me as a Westerner to really appreciate is that not only were these physical needs met, the same being served their spiritual needs. And the kind of wholeness that that brings forth in a life where there's a complete continuity between the physical and the spiritual. Your line for describing this is, a bison hunt, for example, was not just a matter of killing an animal for its useful products. It was an extension and expression of the Plains tribe's relations to bison as physical-spiritual beings. And this is what I mean, physical-spiritual beings. That's a concept we can kind of get, but in terms of the actual living of it, that's quite a stretch. That's where you come to this aspect of the culture, the spiritual life of these indigenous people that is so different and hard to imagine for most of us today growing up in our Western technological cultures, that you can experience animals and plants as they often spoke of them as people. That means as spiritual beings that have a deep reality in the world, have a connectedness with human life, and have also powers that the human being can tap into, can begin to perceive, that the human being can begin to realize how they're woven into a huge world of beings, that's a real world, then that world is not somewhere off in a different world. It's not transcendent in the sense of beyond. It's manifest in the physical bison. The physical bison is not only a physical bison, it's a spiritual bison. And over and above that, though, that bison can speak to one in dreams, for example, very strongly, that the dreaming culture, the culture of the reality of dreams, is so marked in the Native Americans, and that the bison are, especially for the Plains tribes, belong to some of the most significant people, significant beings, that can guide the life of the individual and through the individual of the tribe how to help them to heal, how to know whether they should go in this direction or that direction. And this is what's so hard for us to often fathom today, is that they could kill hundreds of bison, kill hundreds of them, and still revere them. There was not a sentimental relationship to animals, not at all. We would often say, seems barbaric. But they had 
a whole nother sense of what these creatures were. And the creature did not stop at the physical presence. It was much bigger than the physical presence. And yet it was also very clear, and that became clearer into the later 1800s, where individuals in the Plains tribes dreamt or knew or it was spoken to them. When the bison disappear, we disappear. And this is not only physical calculation. It means if there's not a presence on earth of these beings, we can no longer be present on earth. So this symbiotic relationship in a physical, living, spiritual sense was just completely clear. It wasn't a question. It wasn't a theory. It wasn't a projection, how we often think of it. Oh yeah, they're projecting these things into the animals. These were experiences. And I don't have those experiences, but I can take seriously what they're saying. And I think I need to do that, otherwise I'm not understanding these people. And the question, am I understanding the bison if I'm only looking at the bison in my 21st century ecological scientific mind? There's so much in what you said, and I'm going to ask you to say a little more by reading your final paragraph in that section, which is on page 17, that begins with extending beyond, and then we can talk a little more. Extending beyond its remarkable and crucial material service to the Plains tribes, the bison inhabited their souls and became part of their actions. The bison was a fellow spiritual person, a guide, and a teacher who taught from the inside out and served materially from the outside in. The bison extended into the very core of a human culture. Or we could also say a human culture stretched out into the many-layered being of the bison. Craig, I wanted you to read that because I recognize that it's very similar to what you said earlier. And what you said earlier was very powerful in terms of a clear picture. But there's a couple sentences in here that I want to focus on. The bison was a fellow spiritual person, a guide and a teacher, who taught from the inside out and served materially from the outside in. So I think everyone will understand, and served materially from the outside in. We saw that in our list of all the ways the bison was used. But this phrase, who taught from the inside out, let's talk about that inside, because just as we talked about soul spaces not being spatial in a measurable, dimensional physicality, this inside you're talking about here plays with that ambiguity of inside, yes? Yeah. What I mean by the inside is that what comes, for example, to someone in a dream or in a ceremony and where someone does a purification ceremony and then they leave the tribe for a number of days and hope for a dream for a significant dream. And if that dream comes, that is coming from the bison. And the bison now tells us we should do this. 
and that's communicated to the rest of the members of the tribe. That's what I mean from the inside. The dreaming, the preparation through the many ceremonies that we would call maybe today the closest, what we would say would be intuitions, come maybe the closest to what they're speaking about, if it's not a dream. That that comes and that informs then the relatedness to the bison as its physical energetic being that's running around on the prairie. And then that is killed and used in the way we spoke about it before to support the whole material existence of these people who lived in the the central prairies of North America. You used us to read the line again, the bison was a fellow spiritual person, a guide and a teacher. This is the part I wanted to emphasize, as you did, who taught from the inside out. And as you said, in the different rituals and ceremonies and vision quests, it wasn't information they were getting. They were being talked to and taught. It wasn't data. Not at all. A very different relationship to how one is guided to behave in the world. And you say this, the, the reciprocity here too, in terms of hearkening back to our first conversation in the intermingling and the relationship between center and periphery, your last line here is, or we could say a human culture stretched out into the many-layered being of the bison. Yeah. In other words, it goes both ways, this mutual exchange. Yeah. And it was sensed very much as a mutual exchange because I'll say the insights given to the people through the spiritual bison were given gifts. They were gifts. And there needed to be a reciprocity of thankfulness, of gratitude towards this powerful being of the bison who is supporting their lives. And the bison will not be able to give insights to people who are not open, who do not cultivate the relationship. So the people have to reach out, become open, to do that. It wasn't just something every Native American had. It was a process of inner transformation to be able to reach into the sphere of the spiritual bison. And if people don't do that, if the people didn't do that, then the bison couldn't help them. Craig, the bison and its thoroughly relational life just keeps growing for me. Thank you. Thank you. In our next and final episode, Craig will read the last part of his essay, which describes the many layers of relationship that we've discussed that are a reality of the bison's existence as an individual, a member of a herd, and a member of a human culture. Then he and I will once again have a conversation. We hope that you've enjoyed this presentation. We'd love to hear what you think. You can write to us at info at natureinstitute.org with your comments and suggestions. You can become a subscriber and or download a PDF of all the back issues of In Context, our twice-yearly publication, along with many other books, essays, and podcasts on our webpage, natureinstitute.org. Thanks for listening. (music) 